today my title is a bit lame, Three Massive Encouragements. I wanted to put another adjective in there, like ginormous, mahusif, gigantic. I think um, I'm really looking forward to talking about three incredible and amazing encouragements. We're continuing our studies in Hebrews. We've reached midway through chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 13. I hope if you've been following this, you've been reading Hebrews privately and trying to piece together the flow of the arguments and, and just benefiting from some of the things that we've been looking at. If this is new to you, or you're here for the first time, or um, visiting, then let me remind you that this is a letter written to people who are on the brink of giving up. Um, The recipients are in a very delicate condition. They're tired, they're fed up. It's all gone a bit stale for them. Their specific temptation as Jewish believers is that having known Christ they're now tempted to walk out on him and go back to what they've known all their lives, which is the Old Testament, Judaism. These guys are really on the brink of saying it's too hard to carry on, it's not worth it. We're going to pack it in and go backwards. Christianity doesn't work. Um, It reminds me of one of Jesus' disciples, Peter. You'll, You'll have heard of Peter. And you'll know that some of Jesus' disciples, as a job, were fishermen. I quite like fishing. Sat on the side of the riverbank with my rod. I'm going fishing next week, actually. Um, with, I'm, I'm not a pole fisherman like a rod, you know, and a reel. But these guys were proper fishermen, rugged, out on boats, in the storms. It was their livelihood, their job. After the crucifixion, the end of John's Gospel, Peter is heard saying to the others, I'm going fishing, lads. For him, that was his way of saying it's over. Jesus has been crucified. I know he's risen from the dead, but I've really screwed up and let him down. It's over. I'm going back to what I was doing before. I'm going fishing, lads, you can come if you want. It's amazing how contagious that attitude is, because all the others went, all right, then we'll come fishing with you. We know what you mean. They were miserable. They were on the brink of giving up. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing, lads. These believers who this letter was written to originally felt like that. We've had a go. It was good while it lasted. But it just doesn't seem to be working. And one by one, the people were saying, I'm going back. I've had enough. It's too hard. This is a nightmare. The problem is that what they're really saying is that Jesus isn't up to the job. What he promises doesn't really work. Or even like Peter, if they thought that Jesus was up to the job, they didn't think that they were up to the job with Jesus' help. And so they were going to give up. Christianity isn't working for us. Let's trade it all in for what we were doing before. Now this writer has a very delicate job in his hands. He's writing to Jews, so this is quite a Jewish letter and and it's important that we kind of understand that. But he's got a delicate job in his hands. He wants to warn them in the strongest possible terms of the disaster that is waiting to happen in that attitude. 
the whole letter is really don't give up and he wants to warn them of the consequences of that and he has this he's pretty blunt but he also on the other hand wants to encourage them and refire them and reinvigorate them and reheat their passion like a frozen dinner going in the microwave he wants to thaw them out and warm them back up number four on defrost three minutes he's wanting to take them back from the brink of giving up and reheat their passion. And the truth is that we, we've said this several times, haven't we? This writer is warning and encouraging. And the truth is we need both. And the last two weeks have been hard for you because we've been dealing with the warnings. The last two weeks has been, grow up or it'll be game over. And you've had to sit and listen to that. This week, thankfully, we're going to think about the other side of the coin. We've dealt with the warnings in chapter 6. We're now, as the writer does with his masterful, perfect balance, he flips it over because he wants to encourage them. We've seen a lot of the solemn, serious, disturbing warnings in this letter. And we don't want to minimise that or skip over that. We need that. But today, thankfully, we're coming to look at the other side of the coin. Three mahusif encouragements I was reading the very honest account this week of one young pastor's struggle with this he was very concerned about his church he felt that the people in his church were a bit half-hearted in their commitment to Jesus and one Easter he decided he'd had enough and um, he thought I'm going to ditch my Easter sermon and I'm going to give my congregation both barrels so he stands up the front And he just preaches at them. You're all terrible. You're all half-hearted. He points out what he feels is their disobedience. He calls them to repent and to deeper diligence and enthusiasm for Jesus. And what most people heard was a very strong denunciation with little hope of mercy or kindness or grace. One lady in the congregation during the week wrote to him and she said, you tore us down but you didn't lift us up. Thank God for wise women in congregations. And the pastor says this, she was right. I had attacked but I hadn't provided a solution. I'd warned them but I hadn't pointed to mercy. I had censured them but I had not encouraged. It's a good lesson to learn for a young pastor. Well, I've learned that lesson. Well, you'll, maybe one of you wise ladies will write to me during the week if I haven't. This writer doesn't make that mistake, though. He, he has this brilliant, we, we might say in our modern parlance, that he has the emotional intelligence to warn them of the danger they're in and to encourage them to press on willingly because they need both together. So I want to suggest there are three unbelievably huge encouragements here for them and for us. So we're going to be very simple and very clear. And you don't need to write these down because I'll give you them all at once and then we'll go through them one by one. So you'll have plenty of time if you're taking notes. Here's the three. These are the three encouragements we're going to think about. First of all, they have the inspiring example of others who have been there and done it and got the T-shirt. Isn't that amazing? 
isn't that an encouragement when you see someone who has gone before you and done what you want to do and you've seen them get to the end successfully? Doesn't that inspire you to think it can be done? Those who have run the race and actually got through all the obstacles, all the disappointments and actually got to the finish line. That is a great encouragement, isn't it? And if you're tempted to ask, has anyone ever successfully done this? The answer to that is a great big fat resounding, yes they have. So be encouraged. It is possible to make it all the way to the finish line and not trip over halfway there. Secondly, another encouragement is that they have the rock solid certainty of God's very own promises to them. And this is the bedrock, isn't it, of the Christian life. The ultimate encouragement is not our own effort or achievement, but the genuine and powerful and precious promises that come from God's mouth about us and to us from him. What really makes the difference is not what we say, but what he says. God's promises are rock solid. And the third thing is the heroic. And I might add to that, the everlastingly sufficient achievements of Jesus. These three things, I would suggest, sum up the whole book of Hebrews. If you want to think about the encouragements, this writer gives to people on the brink of giving up, these three are it. You have people who've gone before you who made it to the end. You have a God who has made amazing promises to you and he will fulfill every single one of them. And you have a saviour who is a great hero and it is his achievements that will get you there. You couldn't ask for more, three more great encouragements than that, I don't think. We're going to dwell on the first one. And uh, <laughs> I hope not too long, because we need to have time to do the other two. And um, listen, my, my sincere prayer in private is that you all, all of you, every one of you, all of you would be encouraged, fed, built up, nourished, strengthened and sustained by the word of God given to us here. You have a pastor who prays for you during the week before he preaches. That's good, isn't it? I prayed for you this week that this very word would build you up. So this is a good place to be on a warm Sunday afternoon. And let's hope that uh, the Lord will do that for us. First of all, uh, the inspiring example of those who have been there and done it and got the t-shirt. Now, verse 12 is the key verse. That's why I asked Claire to read, just for the context. Um, He's given the warnings. And then he gets to verse 12, and he says, We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. That's the link verse, really, between the warning and the encouragement. Verse 12 is like a hinge that it all turns on. We don't want you to be lazy, Now, when he says that, he's thinking to himself, now, where can I go to prove my point? And who do I know in history who has inherited the promise? Well, where better to go with a bunch of Jewish believers than the ultimate father of the Jews, Abraham himself? And so, in verse 13... He turns to this man Abraham when God made his promise to Abraham. 
Now we need a little history here. This is why I want to dwell on this first thing. We're going to have to think about Abraham. And uh, you'll, have, you'll have heard of Abraham, but we're just going to have a little skim through some of his experiences so we get the full force of what's going on here. Verse 15 is a mirror of verse 12. And that's the key point really of this section. The writer says, And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. He's the great example. He, he got promised. Abraham waited patiently. And then he received what God had promised. He made it. So Abraham is this great example of what the writers tried to stir their hearts to do. Now words on a page are one thing. You could read that and skip over it in about two seconds. But I want us to catch a sense of the joy and the excitement and the trauma and the heartache behind those simple words. Verse 15 is about someone's life. After waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. That sums up a whole experience of joys and sorrows and ups and downs and traumas and mistakes. That, that sums up half of the book of Genesis, that one verse. So, let's have a little think about Abraham. The Bible underlines, first of all, the fact that Abraham was a pagan man to start with. So, Abraham wasn't a God-fearing man to begin with. There are some Jewish legends that his dad was actually an idol-maker. So, you know, he wasn't from a Christian family. He, he, he lived over the river in the, in the Middle East, and he was brought up a pagan. And God, of all the people in the world at that time, called him, this very guy who'd done nothing to deserve it, and said, Abraham, I want you to put your little puny hand in my great big fat massive hand and come with me. God didn't tell him where they were going, so it did involve an element of trust. I want you to put your little hand in my big hand. I want to go somewhere with you. And this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Leave this place and come with me. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And Abraham's response was to get his coat and say, I'm coming. I'm up for that. I'm coming. He didn't know at this point where they were going. But more significantly, even though he had a large entourage of extended family, he and his wife had no children of their own. And they were old. So God says to him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he says, I'll get my coat, I'm coming. The challenge being that they had no children of their own. It's quite hard to be a nation when you haven't got children to start with. They set out from Ur. They got delayed in a place called Haran until after Abraham's dad had passed away. And then there's a whole series of times when at key points in Abraham's life, God comes to him to reiterate this promise. There's a, I don't, I don't, you'll have heard of Abraham's nephew, Lot. They got so big that they had to separate and Abraham gave him first dibs on the land. You choose, I'll go the other place. So Lot picks and Abraham goes to where Lot doesn't want to go. And after that, God comes to Abraham and promises him that the land he's now in would be where his many descendants would live. Later, his nephew Lot doesn't seem to have been the brightest button in the box. He seems to make some foolish choices. 
and he gets into trouble and Abraham goes into battle to rescue him. And so Abraham is, he, he wins the battle, he rescues Lot and he sits down after the battle, tired, still with no kids and God comes to him again in, in one of his lowest moments and says, don't be frightened Abraham, I am your shield and your very great reward. And Abraham plucks up the courage to ask God about the elephant in the room, which is, I've got no kids. <laughs> you keep telling me all this stuff when I've got no kids. And I'm quite old now. And Abraham plucks up the courage and says to God, what can you give me since I am childless? My servant's going to inherit everything. What is all this talk of great nation? This time, God takes him outside and shows him the stars and effectively says to Abraham, can you count them? No. This is what your descendants are going to be like. Loads of them. Stars twinkling in the sky. Your family's going to be like this, Abraham. Perhaps one of the most significant verses in the whole Bible comes next. It says in Genesis that Abraham... Before the Ten Commandments were given, that doesn't come for another 400 years yet, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God made promises to him and he believed what God said to him. And God declared him righteous, not because of what he'd done, but because he believed the promise that God had given to him. Very profound. God then makes a solemn covenant with him as a sacrifice and two piles and burning torches and deep sleep. Now, it is true. You know the story of Abraham's life. His faith at times was very weak. He did suffer with doubts. He told lies to save his own skin. He slept with one of his wife's servants to have a child to help God's plans along a little bit. He wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But eventually, despite his failings, despite his fragile faith, Abraham and his wife held in their own arms their dream. The little baby Isaac was the beginning of the fulfilment of all that God had said to Abraham. This little boy was the beginning of the nation that God had promised that Abraham's family would become. The boy grows to be a young teenager and you can imagine how proud and full of joy Abraham and his wife Sarah were. Well, God isn't finished with Abraham yet. And then comes a bombshell as God again comes to Abraham and he gives to Abraham what must have sounded like the hardest thing he'd ever heard in all of his life. He commands Abraham to take the boy and go up Mount Moriah and sacrifice the child. I'm not quite sure whether Abraham would have slept that night. the last 20, 30 years 
all the promises God has made. And now the child of promise is here. And you want me to sacrifice that child. What is even more amazing is that it says in Genesis that Abraham got up early the next morning, saddled the donkeys, got some servants and set out. It is just the most incredible story. The ultimate test of faith. And he was there. (coughs) I'm going to do it. Everything God had said to him rested on this child and now he's being asked to give him up. They get up early, they set out, and the clue to Abraham's obedience is found when he, when he says to the servant, you can easily miss this in Genesis, he says to the servant, stay here while I go with the boy to worship God over there, and then we will come back to you. He didn't say I, he said we. He must have reasoned that God knew what he was doing. It says in Hebrews that Abraham reckoned, if God has promised these things to me and he's asking me now to do this, the only solution is that God must be going to raise him from the dead. And for that reason, he had the confidence, the confidence to say to the servant, we're going over there, we'll come back. We will come back. He trusted God so implicitly that he was not at a point where his faith was so strong, so mature, that he could obey God to the nth degree. And just imagine the scene as his trembling elderly hand lifts up the knife. And Isaac, and what an obedient son he was, Isaac braces himself for the piercing blow, both of them weeping and yet trusting God. And at the last moment, God intervenes. And it's like God says excitedly, Now I know! Now I know that Abraham trusts me and loves me more than anything else in all the world. The excitement and pathos of that moment as Abraham gambles everything on God's promise to him. And God right there confirms the promise and wraps up, he grabs all the other earlier promises that he's made into one great big massive promise and God says to him, I swear by myself, that I will bless you. I mean, the, the Hebrew is so, in fact, I will bless, 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 and bless you. I will make your descendants numerous and strong and generous. Abraham, your family will ultimately be the salvation of this whole planet. This, this is cosmic in significance. There's something very important in the writer to the Hebrews' mind here, he's not just picking Abraham as a random guy. If I wanted to emphasise how Abraham believed God's promise, I might have picked one of the earlier promises from earlier in Abraham's life. But this writer picks one from right at the end. And I've I've been asking this week, why, why does he pick this incident right at the end Is it not? Because the writers wanting to emphasise how Abraham made it to the end. He doesn't want to pick a story from the beginning. He He wants to show that Abraham persevered right to the end. 
Let me just read to you a great quote from one of the commentaries. I was reading just the angle of that, the light is <laughs> right on it. Abraham's life of faith was long and weary and it took place in the face of great doubts and obstacles. Abraham sometimes showed heroic faith but at other times was cowardly but he persevered. That is the main point. He pressed on. He did not abandon his faith in God even though he often failed to apply it or failed to honour God as he should, but he pressed onward, and by persevering, he obtained a firmer and firmer grip on God's promise. And again and again, he received a growing assurance of blessing and salvation, an increasing possession of what God had promised. What does this mean for us but that assurance of salvation, confidence in God's promise, and increased grasp of spiritual blessings will come as we press forward in the faith. For all of our doubt and weakness and failure, we have an example to follow in Abraham. Verse 15, And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. He made it. He was frail and weak at times, even angry and frustrated at times. But all the way through the rich and difficult experience of his life, he never once let go of God's promise. Yes, he made mistakes. Yes, he sometimes tried to help God along. Yes, he got the wrong end of the stick sometimes, but never in his life did he walk out on God. And so after waiting patiently, he received what was promised. The writer here is urging him not to give up, but to imitate Abraham. Was he tempted to give up? Yes. Was he tempted to go back? Of course he was. But he had God's promise and he clung to that and as a result he made it to the end. What a great example. Abraham is. Second encouragement was the rock solid certainty of God's promise. We need to see something here that the writer is trying to pick out. He, he picks this example I think as well from Genesis 22. Verse 14 is a quote, a direct quote, from what God said to Abraham just after that incident on Mount Moriah. I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17. The writer picks this example because God prefaces those words with the statement, I swear by myself. When human beings make promises, I, I find often that we are prone to breaking them. Sometimes if what we're saying is very serious, like in court, we have to like swear on holding a Bible. I never knew this till this week. I was just reading up on this. Sometimes people would lift their hand, one hand on the Bible, lift their hand. I, I never knew this, but three fingers and two fingers pointing down, in olden times, that was meant to represent the Trinity. And this was meant to re represent body and soul. So as you're swearing on the Bible, I swear by Almighty God, what you're really saying is, if I tell lies here, I'm inviting the Trinity, God the Father, Son and Spirit, to smash me. 
That's really what we're saying. You swear that if I'm not telling the truth there, may God strike me down. That's, that's the, the kind of traditional way of looking at that. Now, nobody swears by someone less than them. When you swear, you appeal to someone greater than you. That's exactly what the writer says here. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. He can't swear by anyone else, can he? Because if he swears by something else, it's something he's made, and not him. So God can't say, I swear by Almighty God. He is God, so he has to swear by himself. What God is saying to Abraham is, this promise I'm making to you, Abraham, now, is as strong as I am. And the moment someone comes and knocks me off my throne and casts me down out of heaven, that's the time when you can start to worry about me keeping this promise. And is that going to happen? No. While I'm alive, as the living, eternal God, this promise will be fulfilled. I guarantee it. He's swearing by himself. While I'm God, your future is safe in my hands. Whoa! Now, God doesn't have to make an oath because he's not a sinful human being. He's prone to breaking promises. But the writer tells us why he does it. Verse 16. Men swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what he said and puts an end to all argument. Verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. In other words, God doesn't confirm his promise with by swearing an oath because he is untruthful and unreliable he confirms it with an oath because our faith is fragile and weak and we need the encouragement he's not doing it because there's something wrong with him he's doing it because we're a bit slow on the uptake this is divine condescension it's like God says, when human beings make contracts, they swear oaths. I'm going to come down to your level just so you know I mean business. I don't need to do that because my yes is yes and my no is no. My promise should be enough, but I'm going to come down to your level and seal it with a guarantee so that you are doubly sure that what I say will come to pass. Isn't that incredible for God to do that? Can you see why I call this rock-solid certainty of God's promise? The whole foundation of the Christian gospel rests right here. Do you know the reason God's promises are worth something? Because it's him who makes them. This is the God who is incapable of telling lies. This is the God who never changes this is the God who is truth itself. When he promises, he means what he says and will fulfill every word he has spoken. The reason his promises are worth something is because his character is reliable. And he seals it with a double seal. 
So verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Listen, it is not your sincerity or your confidence that makes the difference. When we were kids, there was a, there was a field. My, my parents lived at the end of a cul-de-sac, L-shaped cul-de-sac, and there were fields. And we, I was told to someone about this the other day. We used to love to play in those fields, building dens, fishing, rubber rings in the little pond. And there was a little stream. It was more than a stream, but it wasn't quite a river. And um, there was a little bridge over it, and it was known in the town as Shaky Bridge. There was a tree as well further downstream that had fallen over, and that was known as Shaky Plank. <laughs> it's funny what you remember as a kid. Shaky Plank. It wasn't that shaky, but Shaky Bridge. Sh- sh- it wasn't even shaky. But I've never forgotten that description, Shaky Bridge. You know. The thing that, if, if you wanted to walk over that bridge, the thing that gets you over the bridge is not your confidence, is it? In fact... To, to make it amusing, you, you could set off over a broken bridge and think, I really believe this bridge will hold my weight. I really believe. I believe. And you could set off over the bridge. If the bridge isn't strong, it's going to break and you're going to go straight in the water. On the other hand, you could be on your hands and knees with the fragilest confidence, crawling, thinking, I really hope this bridge holds my weight. I think it will. And you could be so fragile, what is it that holds you up? The thing that makes a difference is not your sincerity. People talk about all this time, all the time spiritually. So long as you're sincere, it makes no difference whether you're sincere. If what you're trusting in breaks, you're in the water. But if, even if your faith is the fragilest, smallest, little mustard seed of faith, if it's in the right thing, it'll hold you. Isn't that true? Shaky bridge. What are you trusting in? Are you trust, are you, have you got faith in your faith? Oh, my faith's so strong, I believe. It doesn't matter how sincere and confident you are in your faith. The thing that will hold you is what you're trusting in. And the reason God's promises are worth something to us is because they are not shaky bridge. They're unshakable. And so Abraham has this great double guarantee. His whole life story is one of realising this very thing. Oh, it's too warm to get excited. Let's, um, let me show you another surprise I've, I've already shown you by reading it. Verse 18 is a very surprising verse. Verse 18 says, just follow it with me. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie... Abraham would be greatly encouraged. Is that what it says? God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we may be greatly encouraged. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. God's done this for Abraham, surely, so that he would be... What have I got to do with Abraham? How on earth am I going to be greatly encouraged by what God did to and for and with Abraham? Oh, this is good. 
Don't forget that what God has promised Abraham is that his family will be huge and strong and generous and a blessing to the whole world. That was the significance of God's promise to Abraham. What God is doing in the world is building a family. He is building actually an everlasting family. And the reason this should be an encouragement to you is that you are the fulfilment of the promise God made to Abraham because you are in that very family. Turn with me just back a few pages to Galatians chapter 3. It's on page 1170 if you've got a church Bible. 1170. Paul writes to a church, a range of churches in Galatia. And he says this, You are all sons of God through, Christ, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And get this, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. (laughs) That is a big wow of a verse. If you belong to Jesus... You are in Abraham's family. That's what the Bible says right there. Not only a part of his family, but that means you'll inherit the promises that God made to him. It's quite a big deal being a Christian. Being part of that global family. God promised it to Abraham. And we're part of that amazing family. That means that when someone comes to faith in Jesus, I I don't know if Abraham's sitting somewhere watching all this, but if someone comes to faith in Jesus, there's another twinkling star. There's another growth in Abraham's family. There's another light that's shining. God is building Abraham's family. And he does it through Jesus. God's promise to Abraham is a gospel promise. We haven't got time to go into all this. I wish we did. Do you know, Abraham, as a man, had the seed of Christ in his own body. His great, 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 dot, 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 great, great, great grandchild was Jesus Christ. So as God makes these promises to Abraham, what God is doing is preparing the way for his son to come into the world as a descendant of Abraham. This is what Galatians is all about. He is build, he's promising to Abraham to build his family, and the ultimate fulfillment is that that family's built through Jesus Christ. What God is doing is offering hope to the world through Jesus. So God did this for Abraham so that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the swearing, the oath, which it's impossible for God to lie, we, we, who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Can you see what I've entitled it? Three mahusif encouragements. This is the whole point of this passage. He's offering hope to you, to us, personally, in 
Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is a cosmic story. Number three, the heroic achievements of Christ. It gets even better. Now, the writer says something very odd here at the end because he talks about an anchor. Verse 19, if you're still with me, we have this hope, this hope that's offered to us to be part of God's great global family. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Now, I'm not like an expert on ships and anchors, but normally when you've got an anchor... I think what happens is you're on the boat, you know, you get the anchor, it's quite heavy, it might take a few of you to carry it, and what you do is you lob it over the side of the boat and it goes down and it catches on the seabed and then the ship is kind of... But this anchor is a bit unusual because this anchor, you're in the boat, you get the anchor, two or three of you around it, but instead of lobbing it overboard and down into sea, you lob it up into the sky. <laughs> because it says here... We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, famous go. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He's talking about heaven. Whoever heard of a ship that had an anchor in the sky? It's like a bizarre illustration. We're not dropping anchor, we're lobbing it upwards. In olden times, this, this illustration is very much part of this time. In olden times, I'm told that some Greek harbours were very difficult to get into. If the tide was low, there would be sandbanks. And so the bigger ships wouldn't be able to, if, if the tide was low, the bigger ships wouldn't be able to get into the harbour. I suppose sometimes it might be because the weather's bad. I've, I've not been able to check this, but one writer says that in, in the time when this was written, they hadn't really mastered the art of having rudders. So the ship would be steered by adjusting the sails. So you can imagine if it's really stormy weather and the entrance to the harbour is narrow, you know, you, you're trying to control that with the sails and you're you crashing into the rocks. So the idea would be that a chap or two off the bigger boat would get into a little rowing boat and they would grab hold of the anchor they would put it in the little boat and then they would row into the harbour and they would put the anchor in the harbour. And do you know what those little men in, the, in that little boat were called? They were called the forerunner. And that is the exact Greek word that the writer to Hebrews uses here. It's translated in the RIV Jesus who went before us, literally in the Greek, where Jesus, our forerunner, has entered on our behalf. He has left the harbour, come into the stormy sea, and attached one end of the cable to your heart and soul, and then rode back into the harbour and dropped the anchor in the harbour. And even though you feel like you're being tossed around on a very stormy sea, there's an unbreakable connection between you in your storm-tossed boat and the harbour that we can't yet see. Behind the curtain, Jesus is the forerunner. So the anchor isn't dropped into the sea, it's lobbed up into heaven. So if you're sitting in this room today, if you've got faith in Jesus, there's a little invisible cable 
And the other end of that cable is in God's very presence in heaven with an anchor there. And I suppose when the weather got better or the tide came up, if the guys couldn't steer the boat, they would pull on the line for all they were worth to get into the harbour. It's an amazing picture. It is Christ and his heroic achievements that make the difference. Do you see how safe that makes you? The writer says, Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest for how long? Forever. It's not a temporary arrangement. These achievements of Jesus are everlastingly sufficient. Christ has died and been raised and ascended to heaven with the other end of your cable. Now, you're a Jew and you're tempted to give up. And the writer is saying to you, don't go back to Abraham. Abraham was great, but he points to Jesus. Don't walk out on Christ and go back to what you knew before. Trust in and cling to Jesus. Don't go back to the shadow. The reality's here now. One old writer says that faith is to lay hold of the blessedness that has been obtained through Christ and to hold fast with manly strength and power to the blessedness once obtained and on account of no threat or danger, come they as they may, timidly to cast it away. This is amazing because it all depends on God and yet somehow it depends on us being manly don't give up hold on God has done it all but we need God's sovereignty human respect you need these things to be in balance I was thinking this week, you know, that's all great, but how can we apply this to ourselves here in Rotherham? So we're going to close, but just three very quick things. Self-perception, first of all. What, What is your opinion of yourself today? This afternoon you might have come to church and you, you look like you're very happy but inside in the secret places you might think oh I'm so unworthy. I'm so small and insignificant. Or worse than that you might be saying inside I have messed up so much. How could God have anything to do with me? Listen. This very God wants to tie a line to your poor heart and anchor the other end in heaven. So you have nothing to fear from him. However far away you may feel from him, what you have is the word of his promise. Come to me and I will not drive you away. 
Jesus once said to his disciples, who were very frightened, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. What's your self-perception to that? It's the wrong question, Matt. Really, I don't want you to focus on you. <laughs> what I really want you to do is think about him. But I have to ask the question, if you feel unworthy, guilty, insignificant, this writer says, flee. Flee and take hold of the hope that's offered to you. That is the great joy-giving, life-enhancing sap of the gospel. Secondly, I want to think about motivation. Often a great challenge for us is not that we feel unworthy so much as burdened. You know, the Christian life feels like a great big long list of things to do. And I just feel tired. I'm fed up of it all. I know I should, but I just have no motivation. And churches can so easily slip into forms of moralism and legalism where you do it because you have to. And the guy at the front's always kind of, come on, try harder. But there is a different way. Instead of thinking of life being a great moral test, why not change that perspective and see that Jesus has attached a line to your heart and anchored that line in heaven and that the things you now do are not a test to past, but the things that you do are ways of deepening and enhancing and confirming that security that you have already in Christ. I don't want to encourage you to do things because you have to. I want to encourage you to look to Jesus and do things because you love him and want to deepen your sense of assurance. As you trust God like Abraham did, your grasp of his promise will deepen. And you'll do it not because you have to, but because you want to. You will love Jesus because you've realised that he's first loved you. So motivation is very important. And last of all, what about your circumstances today? What about when life is really hard and very difficult and you do feel like you're in a boat, tossed about, in a storm, you don't understand what God is doing? Is it not a huge encouragement to your heart today that the other end of the line has got a great big fat anchor on it behind the curtain in heaven? The writer is saying, don't give up. Keep on clinging to Christ. You have an inspiring example in Abraham, your father, who despite his mistakes and frailty, made it to the end through patient, enduring faith. You have the rock-solid certainty of God's promises to you that are guaranteed by God himself. And you have, more than all of that, the heroic achievements of Christ, who is the forerunner, who has gone before you right into heaven and anchored your heart and soul and life there. So be encouraged. We've had the warning. Now we've had the encouragement. Three gigantic encouragements. I hope they are helpful as we nourish and strengthen and sustain our faith by God's grace. Amen.